Hello everyone, I'm Al Deldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators and Big Ideas podcast. We're supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. This episode is hosted by Manuel Olomorin. Manuel is an engineer who worked in the oil and gas business. Now a marketer helping small businesses reach new customers on digital platforms and keep their existing customers happy. His superpower is that he is an insatiable hunger to learn and try new things. You're about to listen to Manuel's conversation with guest Eric Little. So let's get started. Take it away, Manuel. Today I'm speaking with Eric Little, a genius who built a mechanical ventilator unit at 18 and now is working on the transition to clean power generation as the founder of an exciting startup, Solstice Power Core. Oh, thanks, Manuel. I'm a little bit flattered. I'm not a genius at all. <laughs> <laughs> Well, only geniuses say that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> so how are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. Yourself? Yeah, doing perfect. I mean, great weather, so we can't complain Great weather, much. come on. It's been chilly out here in Calgary. <laughs> well, this is why we need people like you to solve that kind of problem for us, you know? The clean weather? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty darn cold, but uh, you know what? It's a great city. I just moved to Calgary uh, about a month ago. And I've been really enjoying my time here. It's uh, it's a great energy. Um, And what's funny is that I came from Grand Prairie, which is another energy hub, but very obviously focused on the oil and gas sector. Coming down here to the city, uh, realizing my dream as an entrepreneur, um, and you can talk to some mentors and industry professionals. Um, It's been just a phenomenal experience, and I can't believe the successes I've experienced through the rainforest in the first month. Uh, so I really got to thank you for your time and uh, having me on today. Thank you very much. Um, so you, you mentioned something about rainforest. Um, how did you find rainforest, really? Uh, well, I ended up finding it through a friend of mine called uh, Simon Bergeron. Uh, he works um, with Impulse Partners, which is an incubator uh, sort of, um, what do you call it, uh, ecosystem based out of London, England. And he's a high school friend of mine from Ottawa. And he had told me about this building here, Nucleus, and what it represents, and uh, highly recommended I come to a rainforest event. Uh, he had had a friend who came through rainforest about uh, two, three years ago, and they uh, had really high praise for the system. So I uh, decided to come here uh, the first week that I actually moved to Calgary, uh, seeing wow. if uh, there were any mentors or people out there that you know, could help me uh, on my new startup called Solstice Power Corp. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So what exactly made you decide to move to Calgary? Well, kind of like what I was inferring to before with the uh, the whole Grand Prairie thing. It's a terrible place to live, uh, you know, in terms of uh, being a young kid who doesn't really want to make, uh, you know, 500, 600 bucks a day toying around in the cold. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, uh, you know, find a way to pursue my dream, which was uh, to build a portfolio of clean energy assets, uh, specifically power generating assets. And, um, you know, I I went to Grand Prairie a few years ago because I wanted to get that industry experience. I wanted to work out in the fields, get my hands dirty and uh, 
uh, almost uh, metaphorically speaking, I'll you know, get my badges um, and come out of there with some sort of experience and knowledge so that I could utilize it towards this startup. Um, and really happy I came down to Calgary because not only is the energy here electric, but uh, there's so many professionals that we can now utilize in uh, essentially this startup. Um, and there's been a lot of support through the rainforest that I found the last month. So uh, if, if this is only the first month, I can't imagine how great it's going to be. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So you mentioned something about getting industry experience. And I'm just wondering to myself, considering you most likely went to Grand Prairie with your eyes open and you were thinking, okay, I'm going to have to go to this place that's not so fun to live in, especially for a young person, right? And yet you decided to make that choice. What what made you take that decision to move to Grand Prairie at that time to learn stuff in the field versus actually coming to the city, for example, straight up in Calgary and, well, working in the office? It's a great question, Manuel. I mean, it's almost a question that my parents asked me every day I was up there. <laughs> um, it's it's it has to do with my passion for solar power. And I've been kind of on this path for the last five years following a university of trying to build a company that's focused on building a portfolio of solar power plants in Canada. Now, how do I do this? I told myself five years ago, I thought it would be going up north to these remote northern communities where they burn diesel fuel. And I thought that by converting those microgrids, it's the technical term, to solar power generation, then it would reduce the fuel costs, at least during the summer months when there's a lot of sunshine. The economics made a lot of sense five years ago when I was writing my undergraduate thesis. So I just moved up there. And what's wild is that, you know, to my dismay, building a project with that grade of economics, which in my mind would take maybe six, to, six months to a year to build, it hasn't been built yet. Um, so while I was living up in the Yukon trying to build my first project, I told myself, how can I possibly build solar projects outside of this confined space here in the Yukon where there's only limited amount of communities which I could tackle? I thought to myself, how about using old well sites? Well sites that have power lines going to them already that are essentially considered to the public and by the public a complete liability, an outstanding one, and also a you know, contaminated site, which farmers don't like as well. So I, I said to myself, my gosh, like how can I possibly get in the business of building solar farms on these sites? Well, um, instead of trying to formulate how do I get contractors to come on board, you know, how do I essentially incentivize investors to look into my you know, business thesis, I just told myself I have to get out in the field and see really what's going on out there. Uh, how do oil companies think? And uh, what are the real activities that undergo at a well site um, to allow such contamination and an eyesore for the Canadian public? And I was quite shocked by the fact that the Canadian oil and gas industry does a hell of a good job. I was very impressed. Uh, I learned so much not only in terms of health and safety, but just a great group of guys who were dedicated about what they did, very passionate about what they did. 
and hey, I, I just learned a lot about myself too, uh, being out in the cold. And what's great about this is that it was a learning experience and one that I could all take towards this startup that I have called Solstice, where we want to build solar projects on well sites. And let me tell you how we'll do it. <laughs> the whole idea came about when I was abandoning with my own bare hands a well on a service rig for Precision. Uh, Precision is a well servicing company. Um, and uh, my work predominantly was on a service rig doing abandonment. So we would go onto a site and be those who take out essentially um, the casing and the tubing um, all the way down hole and either replace it with older pipe so we can recycle the new stuff or just essentially um, make sure that nothing's broken down hole. Make sure that uh, you know, everything is kosher before we cap it. So what ended up happening was I found that when we were abandoning such wells, we were leaving a lot of residual gas in the well. Sometimes in the production values of like a thousand MCF a day, just a ridiculous amount of gas, which we were flaring throughout the whole process. Um, so to see that happen kind of uh, ignited a spark in me. It was a cool idea um, of how can I build solar farms on these well sites, as well as also take the gas from the well and produce electricity from that as well. And that's what the company is all about. And really glad that we actually took this progression because the transition to renewable electricity is not going to happen overnight. And the Alberta grid, grid um, is growing in demand by about 5% a year because, you know, you know Families are growing. Uh, Alberta is still very prosperous in my eyes. A lot of people are moving here. And the city keeps growing both here and in Edmonton and uh, every community in between. And what's great about this industry is that we can take sites that were once considered liabilities and build small-scale generation on them. That's awesome. Yeah. Hopefully it all works out. <laughs> <laughs> so... What are the major challenges that you see just coming into the industry and taking on a different approach? Well, I'm not sure if people have already kind of had this com uh, conversation around similar ideas, but you're probably one of the few people actually going after tackling this this challenge. So what would you say the challenges you've, you've faced so far are? I think it's a combination of things whereby the Alberta government understands, and this is also the BC and Saskatchewan governments, understand the sheer magnitude of the problem. So there are roughly, in my calculations, 110,000 wells right now that are sitting inactive. And that's a big umbrella term, but inactive, we really have to appreciate in this conversation is just being uneconomic. It's not producing any resource for the Albertans or, you know, people from BC or Saskatchewan that, you know, should be actually benefiting from these very contaminated and also liable sites. And we got to find a way to either harness some economic potential from them or absolutely abandon them today. So how do we come in and help is by pinpointing those many, many sites and in my calculations, it could be up to 80,000 of these wells possess marginal gas reserves, which we can profitably, thanks to the deregulated markets uh, here in the Western provinces for power generation, 
we can actually take that gas, turn it to power and sell it on the grid very competitively compared to the big players, which buy gas essentially for fixed rates for many, many years. Our input cost is essentially free other than paying our taxes and royalties. But the biggest challenge is, is just to get the awareness out there. We haven't yet built a project, but we're very hopeful that in the near term, uh, we will be building our first project with a small private uh, called Wilcox Energy. And we also are working with the Natural Gas Innovation Fund. Um, very small window of opportunity for that fund, but we capitalized on it uh, when it came out in December. We had lovely meeting with Perpetual Energy and it looks like they might have certain sites for us to tackle in the magnitude of maybe 240 sites. And that just kind of shows you what the potential is here, whereby there might be some challenges in terms of pinpointing the opportunities. It's got to be a good candidate well where it's close to a power line. But the rest is pretty straightforward. And a gas generator is not that complicated to install, hook up, and then interconnect to the grid. That's awesome. So I'm holding on that note. You've been doing some work with the Often Wells Association, correct? Yeah. So um, they, in my mind, were our biggest customer when I started this business because I thought the Orphan Well Association uh, would be essentially handling a lot of these wells out of inventory constraints being a very underfunded agency in nature because it is industry funded, whereby the industry is right now struggling. So to see them in this state where they are taking on now thousands of wells versus the estimated hundreds that the industry had put out years ago, uh, the lack of preparation for what would be this uh, terrible and depressed um, state of oil and gas markets. The Orphan Well Association really took a liking to our idea, but from a different perspective too. And this is something you can also appreciate by this whole uh, you know, uh, company and what it stands for. Uh, we want to clean up the mess and we want to reduce emissions. And how do we do that? We take methane, which would be otherwise stranded in the ground or stranded in the actual wellbore itself, and we convert that to CO2. So methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, about 25 times the potency and heat trapping effect of CO2. When you combust methane, you turn methane, which is a naturally occurring element, into CO2, which is why it's considered clean. Now, just think about the hundreds of thousands of wells, like I'd priorly mentioned. If we don't properly take care of these wells, they will leak. I can promise you that. And you will see methane leaking happening on a scale that is unimaginable. And it's not about shutting in the valves. The valves always fail. So by going out and building these projects on the wells, not only are we producing extremely cheap and clean power for the grid, but we're eliminating the emission problem, which is methane leaking. I got to say methane leaking based on the IPCC report for climate change by the UN this year, said that the oil and gas industry is not responsible for the emission of the world. Uh, you know, we are as a people who consume the product. But in terms of the producer's impacts, it's because they're not properly handing their, handling their leaking. And methane leaking is the most dangerous of all emissions from this industry. 
So by going in and actually building generators, we convert methane to CO2, drastically reducing the impact and responsibly to making use of the gas versus just essentially sitting on a methane bomb. So the Orphan Well Association gave us a neat project, uh, a pet project, uh, but for them would essentially be a, a lifesaver. Uh, the most problematic well in the province right now is in Vermilion, uh, whereby this well, which was uh, drilled in the 30s, now sits down hold two major explosive charges, which uh, did not detonate. There's a big fish down there, so they can't pull out the pipe. And there's so much damage that was made by those uh, unexploded charges uh, just through degradation that there's gas migration coming up the casing line and is supercharging essentially reservoirs all the way to the top. So it's leaking methane everywhere uh, from the ground surface and also through the casing vent. And the craziest thing about all this, you know, it might sound very technical, but let me bring it down to earth. The well is in between three houses in the city. It is located in a suburb where the developer, when they built this property, built houses around this very problematic well. So we can't drill a drilling rig in uh, to fix the problem. So what are the options? Well, the Orphan Well Association could buy three of the houses, level them, and then bring a drilling rig out, and through, through just prying, take out not only the tubing and casing, but the surface casing and cement. And this is only a $30 million job, which would I think provides something like they said today would be a 20% success rate. So it's a, it's a tough project. And we've been essentially assigned with the task of avoiding this monstrous task by instead just going in there with a generator and a small vacuum system and sucking out all the methane that is trapped in those supercharged locations as well as in the casing itself. And produce clean electricity for the grid for those surrounding three houses and more. And the impact is obviously maybe a little noise pollution, but the generator will be very small. And the whole idea here is that we can avoid the relocation of families and the very expensive and noisy drilling rig to come in and fix an issue that was not fixed properly and not handled properly. Um, so really happy that they've approached us with this project. It's uh, very touching to me. Uh, because they're essentially giving a 25-year-old kid uh, the most problematic well in the province to deal with. Um, and I think we're going to do a great job with it. So you spent some time in Burkina Faso, right? I did. And you worked with your dad for a little bit. Your dad works is a CEO of a mining company, correct? Yeah. At, at the time, he was building a project called the Essacan Mine. Uh, big gold project in Burkina. At the time, really one of its first um, and it took about 20 years to get this thing off the ground. Um, and a phenomenal project in its own right. Uh, the open pit setup is so vast you can see it from space. It's about the size of Manhattan. Oh, wow. And it's operating to this day under a Quebec company uh, called IM Gold. Now, a great project and funny enough how I got started in the solar industry. So. I remember sitting uh, in my dad's office when I was in grade 11, so I would have been 16 at the time. And I remember him complaining to you know, just some of his uh, co-workers, uh, investors, 
that the power costs at the mine were going to be so great that it might be upwards of 30 to 40 percent of his total costs would just go towards power. So, you know, no pun intended, a very much of a light bulb moment for me. And diving into that question about, hey, uh, you know, why? Why is your mine, um, you know, your biggest mine OPEX is power? And he sat me down and he said it was because we were going to use heavy fuel oil and diesel to power the mine. So at the time you're growing up saying, my gosh, well, you know, how can this be very expensive? Because we all drive around with diesel, you know, cars and all the trucks in the road are diesel uh, powered. It's very expensive. And unfortunately at the mine, since it's so remote and the Burkina Faso grid is not supportive of a large capacity base, the mine had to build its own power infrastructure. And he ended up doing it. He had to build a 20 megawatt power facility for heavy fuel oil on the plant. So this is when I had this interesting inquisitive thought. How about we power the mine off of solar panels? So, you know, he kind of laughs and chuckles and, you know, no one takes <laughs> me seriously on this and I bug him for months on this, but it stuck with me and I kept pestering him. I started doing a little bit of research. I remember at the time too, I called in uh, how it's made at the Discovery Channel show. Really? And I asked them if they could make a, a show on how they make solar panels. <laughs> so just you, you can yeah. cheat and get yeah, <laughs> Just so I can understand, right? That's See, funny. at the time it was 2011, solar was still extremely expensive. Yeah. But you know what's crazy, Manuel? Is that they did it. You know, they I was, I was a. The show? Yes. They made, not only did they make the show, but the, the mine now operates off solar. Right. Wow. So and this is this is what I think really sparked my ambitions of being an entrepreneur was that I had some sort of say or maybe a good salesman. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. But it was something quite, quite interesting where I was able to be a catalyst for something greater. And uh, I was so taken aback by that about how I put something out in the universe and it came slapping me in the face. And I, I knew from that moment that not only I was going to be in the power business for the rest of my life or for a foreseeable future, but that my focus was to be on where power was most expensive. And this is why, you know, great, great on just like the whole team that I've developed here and the whole kind of, um, you know, the mentorship opportunities through the rainforest, because, you know, like I just mentioned, it was an idea and you need some great people to help make an idea into something. Yeah. And, you know, I was a kid at the time, right, when I was talking to my dad, and I wasn't really part of that project you know, throughout the whole way because, um, like I said, I didn't have really a role or responsibility there at the time. But just seeing, you know, how my dad operated his company, he himself is a great entrepreneur in his own right, he was able to create a great team of board members and employees to build something magical. And another big reason for coming down to Calgary was just to have that access to those same type of resources. Because if I knew that my ideas were good enough and that the execution strategy was good enough, you can do anything, especially in this province. There's something in the water. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but or, or it's just lots of whiskey and beer. But it's, 
you know, there's something really special here in Alberta where people yeah. like to get up and work. Um, being out in the field with a bunch of other Albertans definitely taught me some work ethic that I needed. And I couldn't be in a happier place in time where not only is there an emphasis on clean power generation, but we're in a time now where every oil and gas producer is going to be facing just tremendous liability constraints uh, in terms of building more resource potential or simply just handling those liabilities that they right now just can't handle. So I look at this company, Solstice Power Corp, like a means of something greater where we can help the industry out in a big way by not cleaning up their mess, so to say, but definitely going in and creating economic activity where it was once thought impossible. And then have the ability in the future to convert possibly those natural gas power plants into solar farms and really enact my vision of what I think the future grid will look like. A sea, thousands sea of, of these distributed generation systems, mainly built of solar power and batteries. And I think we're going to get there with this strategy. It's, it's so much better than hounding down a farmer, right? Yeah. Just think about that process of just like a landman here in Alberta having to knock on a farmer's door and say, hey, can I use like a small piece of your land, three acres? And some of them say no. Yeah. So how about instead of bothering farmers more and more and, uh, and raising their hairs, let's just use those sites that are already considered an issue. All right. Yeah. There's so much potential there. And if, if I'm not right, and let's say solar is not the future, at least I know batteries will be in the mix and we can just replace the generator with the batteries. And you know what, even if I'm wrong there, if the batteries, let's say, are inferior in 10 years, I still feel like I would have accomplished something great where we took methane that was sitting in the ground or trapped and made something with it that every Albertan or maybe even in BC and in Saskatchewan, everybody could use for their power and eliminate the emissions from methane. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So going back to building, well, at least suggesting the improvements to your, to your dad about the solar power in the mine, after that process and, and catching the entrepreneurial bug, what was your next move? Well, funny enough, uh, it was, it was, it was a neat progression, but um, growing up in Ottawa, uh, Ottawa is known for being a government city and uh, very bureaucratic. Uh, it's also, it was kind of funny growing up in a city like that where my father was an entrepreneur, right? Because uh, going to high school in Ottawa and even elementary school, a lot of my uh, school peers, um, everybody worked in the government. That was what their parents did. And that's what their children were destined to do. And it seemed like in my classes growing up, I was the only guy that was going to have his own business because that's all I knew. I knew I had to get out of the city because um, Ottawa is known for being full of blockers. But Calgary and the West, West just in general, it's just not blockers. There's no blockers whatsoever. You know, if you have a great idea and there is a catalyst, uh, there's people that are kind of come out of the woodwork and help you. 
and regulators are not, um, you know, so dim-witted to, you know, block your innovation or get in the way of essentially something great. So, uh, like, you know, the line says, you know, move west, my boy. I absolutely <laughs> did that when I was 18. Um, and I moved to Kamloops. And the reason why I moved to Kamloops is at the time, even though I'd, I'd just, you know, been very fascinated for a few years with solar, um, I, I, I care for people. I, I, I think it's, um, it's good that we have uh, great healthcare professionals in Canada that really care about people and, you know, they a good amount of money and I said hey like maybe you should just do you know go into healthcare because uh, I think I'm a pretty compassionate person and I could share some of that compassion with fellow Canadians but when I was in school um, there was always that business mind in the background and funny enough the first year that I was in my healthcare program at TRU which is Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops instead of focusing on how the mechanical ventilator unit worked and how it could be used to help patients, I had like piggybacked that by like times 50 and I was already tinkering with the machines, um, building my own, trying to make a software improvement on them because you know, quite frankly, between you and I, those machines are archaic and were designed in the 60s and haven't improved whatsoever. I mean, they work, but oh my gosh, there's so much room for improvement. Uh, so it just goes to show how my brain took over it wasn't, it wasn't an act of going in and just having a focus on helping people. I was trying to find solutions from like an engineering and economical standpoint. I was looking at how many deaths were caused by a certain disease process. And instead of figuring out the theory of how your hum, the human body works and maybe you know, trying to figure out a solution to avoid it, I was trying to improve the machine to respond to those specific disease processes. And I think from that first year, it was a downhill spiral into business school. And <laughs> 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 very happy I did. Yeah. Because um, it, it was, you know, all my teachers would kind of see it, see it that way as well, where my focus was not essentially on the patients. Um, it was more or less about the equipment and what was wrong with them. And uh, my, to my dismay, and uh, I'd complained quite a bit about it. Yeah. And... Uh, very glad that uh, business school brought me in because from that experience from going to business school, um, just learned everything about financial modeling, creating great economic models and creating some sort of macro and micro perspective of how the world works. Um, my specialization at the time or my major focus was accounting. And I, th I thought I'd take accounting because I mean, you know, if I was to become an entrepreneur, at least I could, you know, keep an eye on my own CPA, you know, while I run the business and, and, and know that no one's screwing me. And uh, <laughs> I'm glad I took that that route because at least, you know, I, I could read a bunch of financial statements confidently. Yeah. So when you saw the opportunity to improve on it, right, what actually happened with it? Can you expand on on what you did and what you accomplished just from solving that problem? I sure can. And it's actually a great segue into what we have done as a company for the solar industry. And I think this is where um, my true talents play, where I saw this machine not working uh, correctly. And I decided with um, essentially a bunch of buddies, but definitely went beyond that and uh, uh, got a few doctors out of uh, Shannonville, Montreal, Ottawa, 
quite keen on helping me develop this software platform. We called it Breathe Well Technologies. And the whole thesis of that company was to create something that we called a peep breath automated system. Uh, when you have an acute disease called acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS is what it's called, yeah. your lung is essentially, well, I mean, I could use some worse words, but uh, you're, you're definitely, you're drowning as well as, you know, being constricted. Oof. So your mortality rate for ARDS patients is roughly about 40%. Uh, because the mechanical ventilators don't do a good job of providing all the oxygen you need. And unfortunately, um, while your lung is being restricted slowly, essentially being calcified and turning to stone, uh, the machines aren't good at forcing enough pressure uh, to avoid that and to keep your lungs expanded while your lungs are slowly shrinking and enclosing on themselves. So uh, what we did is we developed this new breathing technique that uses at the time, it's funny, AI is this big catchword right now. Before, we just called it a um, like some sort of fancy algorithm. Like We yeah. just called it an algorithm. But today, everyone uses AI, which is kind of hilarious because, come on, it's, it's an overused term. Come on. But anyway, but you know, I digress. We were using just this, um, this very uh, you know, interesting algorithm that would look at changing of breaths and then would adjust. So I was very keen by this. I ended up taking it to a company that manufactures these machines. And let me tell you something. Never in my life had I thought that a good idea, which such great impl essentially implications, right? If, if this was a solution uh, that would work theoretically, you would think that a company would just invest a little bit of time and effort into making it a reality. Yeah. And I didn't want... A lot of money from this because I knew I was only a kid. I was 18 at the time, uh, but I did get a doctor from you know the East Coast to say this would work. You know, so this is, that was a big deal. Yeah. And I sat down with the head of sales at McKay Medical, and to my surprise, they told me, a kid, that I'd have to come up with basically a million dollars just to get the process, just maybe even going, not even. Wow. Not even just like, you know, say, hey, we have a bunch of engineers internally. Let's just try to create, you know, a software for the system just using your algorithm, which was very simple. It was about a page long yeah. worth of a diagram. Um, so we're very saddened by the fact that big companies, um, although they do, you know, sometimes do a great job of saying that they are quite innovative, are most times not and fail to even invest the smallest amounts um, to embrace new ideas that are fresh from the street, yeah. say the street, because it's you and I, um, and instead would rather focus on spending millions and millions and millions of dollars on ways to selling more junk or more features for a ventilator that is in, in, in itself archaic. And um, was all disheartened by the situation because it went nowhere. And to this day, ARDS is still a problem. And, um, you know, I, sometimes I don't sleep well at night because I know that fact that humans, although we are kind and compassionate and we do listen if we ask for help, um, you know, there's no shortage of that. If you do ask for help, people will listen. But we are terrible at um, embracing new ideas. And 
look at everything like it's um, kind of jumping off the cliff rather than looking at like it's just a long staircase to the top. Yeah. Uh, we're just terrible at not seeing things as a staircase, which, you know, we used to talk about companies like ladders. And I think we've really lost that. We tend to look at companies like they are just uh, paper set on fire <laughs> and that the gas just essentially evaporates and the company fails. And we should start in introducing again the, the, the way of looking at ladders. But I digress. What's really cool about this whole process was that I knew, even though that that mechanical ventilator software idea didn't materialize, that I had the itch. And I knew that from that point on, anything that I could at least focus in on for a period of time, didn't matter if it was 100 hours or 10,000 hours, I knew that I could find a way to improve it. And this is why after that, quote unquote, failure, you know, it definitely was. It didn't go anywhere. Yeah. I knew that I had to focus in on solar again. Because first off, I knew I was already passionate about it before, and I yeah. just didn't take it seriously. I was going through university, but I knew that now I had this great opportunity through faculty members at the business school that we can actually work on a business model that could work for solar in Canada. And this is how it all kind of started. I, um, I started knocking on doors trying to sell solar panels to Kamloops residents. I ended up selling a system uh, to the University of Thompson Rivers. Oh, yeah? And that was my first ever solar project in Canada. Nice. And really glad to say that in the last five years of working in the solar industry, I've put my talent, quote unquote, to use. And using the same kind of techniques that I used on the ventilator, I was able to pinpoint several inefficiencies with how we build solar farms, just in general. And hear me out. So a typical solar farm is consistent of solar panels, right? You know, we all know them well. They look like big pieces of glass and they're blue. They can be black. Most of the time they're blue. And what are they usually mounted on? Well, you know, the typical solar farm, people don't think about what they're mounted on. But that is really the most expensive part. It's about the mounting systems and the labor it takes to put the mounting systems up. The solar panels are so cheap now, it would blow your mind because they're manufactured by 3D printers, either in Taiwan, China, or Korea, and they are manufactured at a scale that it is just unfathomable. Consider this, China last year, while we focus in on Canada on building, you know, you know, a, big, a big system for us is 30 megawatts. That's roughly about 10,000, uh, sorry, 100,000 solar modules for panels. In China, they essentially in one quarter build 100 gigawatts of solar. You're talking about millions of panels being installed every month. Okay. Now, how can this be? How can they possibly do this while we are lagging behind? Because trust me, if you look at a map, China, sure, there's a lot of it that, you know, the big populated areas are, are somewhere near the equator, yeah. but it's also a very, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a big country. And there are a lot of places like uh, just south of Mongolia, which are very similar sun resources to Canada. And this is where they're building most of their solar and wind farms because mm -hmm. um, it's cheap land. So you know, why is this? It's because China can use very cheap labor to build solar farms. And therefore, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a gong show. They can just build as many as they possibly can. For us in Canada, 
we like to pay our laborers well, yes. right? There is absolutely no excuse to have people go out in the field and freeze their balls off and not get paid for it. True. So how can we possibly reduce the cost of solar farms here in Canada, utilizing existing construction techniques while reducing the most expensive input, which is labor, like I just mentioned? Yeah. We ended up developing this solar skid and what it is, it is essentially just a skid-mounted solar array. And why I think this is quite revolutionary is because we can not only build the entire system indoors rather than out in the elements at the field, but we can now deliver turnkey systems on a truck, which are finished and ready to go, to a site. And this is the really the, the biggest irony of all all the technology we're using is from the oil and gas industry. Whoa. Okay. So dare I say in 20 years when I've, you know, built this big solar, you know, portfolio, you can laugh and say that all this was because the oil and gas industry created and used the skid and used the oil field float trailer. Yeah. So what we do is we manufacture these 24 module systems on recycled or sometimes newly manufactured skids. Skids are essentially like a 40 foot by eight foot steel ballast. And most of the time, if you're not familiar folks, it's essentially, it's this um, you know, steel frame, usually consisting of wood on the inside, which the industry uses either as a road or a platform for a drilling rig. It's a, it's, it's a really robust system, which avoids the use of using concrete. And you know what the great thing is about it? It's deployable. Yeah. So you can stack seven of these on a truck and you can move to the next site like that. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what we're doing with the solar business is we're putting it on its head and saying, instead of hiring a hundred people to go on the site and toy around and install solar panels, let's employ the now distressed fabricators of skids in Alberta. Yeah. And instead of you know saying, hey, do you want to put wood in those and make roads out of them? We use that same skid foundation system. So just the metal frame? The metal frame. And then we put solar panels onto it. And just like other skids, it's all foldable. So we would fold onto itself these solar arrays and then stack seven of these skids high. And every single truck delivery that we put out to the field that is 50 kilowatts of solar, which I mean, 50 kilowatts, it seems like Chinese. Uh, but let me tell you, it's, it's a big capacity amount. It could essentially power a hundred homes quite easily. And that's just one truck delivery, which can be installed completely by two individuals in a matter of minutes, not days, not months. So we're really reducing the labor intensity while hiring Albertans that have essentially been laid off due to the recent oil and gas recession. Yeah. Um, and this is just a great way of doing business. Yeah. That's actually pretty impressive. So when, when you collapse the, the panels onto the, the frame, it fits in where the wood would normally go in? Correct. Yep. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> It's, a, it's, just, it's just a neat way of doing things. And yeah. um, really, really you know, glad that the industry came up with the skid because it was one of those things that growing up in Ottawa would never have thought about, yeah. right? 
uh, a big reason why I actually worked in the field for a bit was to be a swapper on a bed truck and to really get to know how the skid works. You know, how do we install hundreds, hundreds of these in a day to build a road or maybe like, you know, I'd say recently 20 of them so that we could put a new drilling pad on. I was just so blown away by how quickly it was to deploy these things. And it was through that experience that the light bulb moment happened. And I said, what if we just put solar panels on these things? Yeah. And for our Watson Lake project specifically, by incorporating this technology, we have saved not hundreds of thousands, but millions of dollars on our project up north. Because now, instead of having to haul up loads and loads of shipping containers full of panels and then ship them back to the coast um, and have to hire a hundred people that are local laborers which you know Watson Lake is only a community of 800 people so we'd have to bring in a lot of people yeah. that costs a lot of money so instead we will ship from a fabrication shop here in Alberta 76 deliveries of turnkey solar arrays that are all ready to go and the only thing they have to do is have an electrician plug everything in that's one person, obviously three laborers to flip up all the panels. That could be four people to build four megawatts. That's 12,500 solar panels. It's, How big is that project? So that would be a four, four megawatt project, yeah. And would be, funny enough, you know, just because I was talking about the gigawatt stuff in China, yeah. four megawatts is going to be the biggest solar project in the Yukon. And it's going to be the fifth largest project in all of the West Coast. Oh, wow. Right. The largest project right now is in British Columbia. No, sorry. It's in Alberta, the Brooks Solar Farm at 27 megawatts. And the second largest is in BC, and it's one megawatt. Now, before we, 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 we call it quits, uh, a couple of things we'll talk about here. Um, so you've mentioned rainforest a few times, right? You've obviously had great impact from, from the organization. Um, so... Just expansiate a little bit more, and um, then we, we can go on and talk about the future of, of both, or how you see the future of Calgary and, and the future of power. Fantastic. I like that. So uh, first off, I got to say, Rainforest was, um, uh, was quite a boon. Like to, to be part of this community already only a month in, uh, and to have the response that I've had is just phenomenal. So, so Rainforest, what it stands for, in my opinion, is a, a, a place of collision. And the universe works in a very funny and mysterious way, Emmanuel. I can't put my finger on it, but it just feels like when people get out of bed and, you know, put their nice shoes on and are just walking to the rainforest, everybody's there excited to present who they are and what they're about and what they want to do to help people and... And it's just, and it's an experience that then translates to partnerships. It's not a partnership with everybody, yeah. but odds are you're going to meet people there that are just as passionate about something as you are, or just passionate in general. Because you have to have something really special to dedicate their time in this crazy and hectic world that we have today to come for essentially a lunch that has no lunch and talk for an hour with people that you've never met before about you and about what you want to do and about possibly working with those people. And you know what? It's just been incredible. The collisions that I've made, quote unquote, 
they've really accelerated my business and kind of put a perspective on what Calgary is to me. So, uh, you know, if, if people are down in the dumps and they don't like the city because essentially, you know, people say, oh, it's going to be the future, you know, uh, you know, Detroit, Michigan. It's like, it's like, no, no, no. Like come to the rainforest because you realize that there is so many dedicated, fun, intelligent people out there that, you know, could be of service to you or you to them. And it's quite funny, but the rainforest means even more to me than just that. Because uh, Brad, who is a, you know, a big part of rainforest, um, you know, he's essentially now provided us with an office and have the ability now to sit down with some of these people that I met through rainforest. So Greg, as somebody else too, Bob, um, all these other great people. And what's happened is through that, now I have some mentors from this Rainforest Collective to help me grow my business. Uh, so coming from this, it would be a great little success story. Um, but who knows, right? Yeah. All I know is that I came here a month ago and now I'm like working upstairs on the third floor where I met these people my first day, <laughs> right? So it's not only a collision, but it's, it's almost like an acceleration. So we can, can can we officially call it an accelerator? I, I don't know. But. I don't know. It's it's a good question actually. I was thinking at myself like because a an accelerator, um, I I find that it's a service, right? Yeah. And they're they're on your case. But I think what's interesting about rainforest is that it's not focused on building businesses from the ground up. I think in our case it was because I had a well developed idea. And sure, I had a lot of well-developed ideas, but through meeting with the Rainforest Collective, people have come out of the fold, such as Tom, and have said, let's narrow your focus on one thing. Let's pursue that at the maximum of our abilities, because based on what I see and what others in the Rainforest Collective see, who are industry experts, let's just focus on one thing and build a business around it. And I was very fortunate, right? So I got to really emphasize that. Rainforest, though, for others, is a meeting place. And it's to disseminize ideas and to essentially put yourself out in the universe in a way that you can't just do online on Facebook. And it's a real interaction versus just, you know, being on the phone or even going to a conference, which I find a conference these days, um, you're there either to raise money or to sell something. Rainforest, yeah. you're just there to chit chat. And you know what? It's you know, it's it's not as uh it's, you know, it's more approachable, it's more palatable for people. And uh, I hope more people come out to the rainforest because um it's just an experience. Yeah. And you could just learn more about yourself, also learn more about others and what's happening in Calgary in general. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is actually very true. I mean my my first experience as well at Rainforest was pretty similar, right? Uh, just met a few people, very interesting folks at the end of the day. It's amazing how many brilliant people you find in there. I mean, you know, at some point I was thinking about moving out of Calgary, right? Because I'm like, well, oil is gone, so <laughs> what else exists, right? And then just visiting rainforest and seeing the energy it, it, it made me rethink 
really. And that's why I'm still here till today, right? Um, so yeah, if you guys get the chance, just drop in. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. What do you envision as the future of Calgary? Now we're talking creating the future for your kids. You're 25, right? In your mind, how do you how do we move from being a society where we 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 go through boom and bust every five to seven years, give or take, to being a society that grows in a steady fashion, right? And it's prosperous for our children, right? So, if I was to see Calgary in the next 20 years, we would be a power-focused city, where all the engineers have come together to then create what would be the new pathways of the smart grids of the future. Um, it doesn't have to be from Calgary, but just think about all the uh, you know, knowledge here that we could then utilize as a transfer. Um, and it's a lot bigger than, than I could even describe because you know power is just one industry in your mind. In my mind, I see it as many, many nuanced professions where, you know, just the internet itself is this collective of so many moving, it's not actually moving parts, but moving parts on the circuit board as well as on the internet and the cloud. And there's just so many people in Calgary that are just so smart and, and so engineered focused that we could utilize that as a big asset. Um, and yeah, who knows what's going to happen? Uh, this is awesome, Eric. Um, it's great having this conversation with you. And whew, boy, I've, I've learned a lot today, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, man. Yeah, like likewise here. I know I'm a. I like. I love to talk. Yeah. Uh, but just trying to get the word out that Rainforest has been just a phenomenal help uh, to me. Um, really hoping to meet more mentors uh, as I grow and as the company grows. And I really got to thank everybody um, that's listening today. That you know who you are. That is, that really helped me along the way. Um, you know, there are many honorable mentions that I can make, but just hoping that the rainforest just keeps chumming along and that we, uh, we do some great things together. Yeah. What is the one thing that you would love to share with the audience as a takeaway that would make their lives much more improved today? First off, I, uh, I'm not a wise man, okay? I'm actually, uh, I'd say, relatively plain, okay? Uh, but there is something that um, I, I, I believe that I could sort of provide as a tidbit for everybody, a little, a little source of advice. Uh, and I've applied this to my own life. And what that is, is find something to do in your daily life that makes you want to get out of bed in the morning. And I mean, I could seem, I could sound like a complete arse saying that, right? Because it's so difficult to find that. And everyone has their, their place and they have to, you know, serve their time, so to speak. And, you know, life goes on and it is so tough to live in this world sometimes because everybody just wants to kick you down in your place. But I'm telling you, if you have an idea, if you have something that just drives you to your core, you will succeed at it eventually. And if you don't, someone is going to come out of the fold and tell you, hey, wake up. This is not going to work. And they're probably going to steer you into be passionate about something else. So my message here is just don't give up because it's so easy to give up in the world that we live in. It's so easy to give up because everyone wants to make money. But life is not about money. It's about happiness. And we have to all be happy to have a great society, 
to raise great kids that are excited about getting out of bed themselves. And let's just all try to find a way to smile more, right? Just love each other. It's the only way. So if you have one thing that you could do every day, it's just to figure out what you want to do in life and slowly tweak your, your daily routines to incorporate it more. And I'm telling you, the universe has a really weird way of working. But if you work at it hard enough, things just click. Things happen. And they happen to you for a reason. And when it happens, okay, so this is the big moment, because I know it will. If you're listening to me right now and you will apply this to your life, it'll happen. Don't be afraid of the risks. And if it happens, just grab onto it and hold on for dear life. It's going to drag you around. It's going to drag you through the mud. But the secret is just not letting go. And just keep going. And don't give up. And you know, it's through the, the magic of what our society is made of today. I'm sure you'll find success. And just be, be happy. And try to make everybody around you happy as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. From the not wise, wise 25-year-old, Eric Little. <laughs> Thanks, Manuel. Like I said, it's been great, man. Yeah, it's yeah. been fun. Absolutely fun. <laughs> Thank awesome. you very Come much, here, Eric. Cheers. Cheers. The interview for this episode was mastered by Coleman Kintop. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-source, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This podcast was made possible by a generous contribution from Zinc Ventures and is hosted by volunteers from Rainforest Alberta. Music for the show was created by King Auroras. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also. Don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>